0: Welcome to the first installment of the PhD Diary series. We're going to cover adversities and challenges I faced during my first semester as a student, my mindset applying for graduate school, and pro tips on how to excel in your own career if you choose to return to school, all in this episode of Goggles Off. Welcome to another episode of Goggles Off. This show is going to be a little bit different than previous episodes, so I figured I would start kind of a Ph.D. diary series uh, in which I'm going to start going through my personal journey and my experience uh, undertaking the Ph.D. after each semester that I complete. So I just completed my first semester uh, in the Ph.D. in Biomedical Engineering at the University of Texas at Austin. Go Longhorns! Um, and so I figured now would be a really good time for me to share some of my perspective uh, and some of, you know, the adversities that I faced uh, in undertaking this journey and kind of give a little bit of a flavor of, of what to expect for someone who is pursuing a PhD or thinking about pursuing a PhD. So really excited to share this experience with you, and I hope you like this new Episode format Um, and like I said, this is more of a personal diaries for me. Uh, We're not gonna have a guest on here It's just gonna be me kind of reflecting on this PhD experience So one thing that I wanted to touch on um, Is my mindset going into graduate school Um, and you know personally? I didn't really come from a background with a lot of money Uh, in fact I actually thought I was going to be a construction worker uh, for the majority of my life uh, that's what my dad did. That's what my uncles did, um, and it really just seemed to be the path that I was on. Was this idea of being a construction worker, and then I got a girlfriend at the time who was just absolutely brilliant, um, and she really—I'm kind of a competitive person, and so she was so brilliant, and I wanted to kind of you know also be uh, smart like she was, and so I started really trying in school, and I started noticing, wow, like this there's something to this, like I actually. Uh, You know, I I think there could be something here. Um, And then after working construction for a while, I realized that uh, not really something I wanted to do uh, just because it's kind of hard on your body. Um, Even though I do like physical labor, I just figured, you know, longevity speaking, it it wasn't for me. And so this idea that I didn't have enough money to go to college and then, you know, also not enough money to go to graduate school was something that kind of plagued me uh, as I was battling with this idea of going to college. Um, For undergraduate, a lot of people know there's things like Pell Grants, Cal Grants, various government grants that you can achieve uh, if you come from uh, a background that that you don't have a lot of money. But for graduate school, a lot of people don't know, even my family members don't really know, uh, that if you're getting a graduate degree, a PhD specifically, in a STEM field, so something like chemistry, physics, any kind of engineering, uh, or, or mathematics, uh, these PhDs are actually not only paid for, so they're going to pay for your uh, tuition fully, uh, but they're also going to pay you a salary of around thirty thousand to forty thousand dollars. And you know that's not a lot of money, but it is you know paying you a salary for you to comfortably live, uh, while also allowing you to advance your degree. So. Just coming from a person who didn't have a lot of money, didn't have a background where I had a lot of money. Um, I think it's important to spread this message that, yeah, you know, actually there's, there's avenues to achieve success in this scientific field. And the PhD is going to be paid for. So that's something I want everybody to kind of consider moving forward. And then another thing that I was really considering when applying for the PhD was this question of, am I good enough? You know, am I, you know, PhD material, a doctor material? And, for me, I really battled with this heavily because I'm a first generation college student and the first in my nuclear family to, to go to college and complete a four year degree. Uh, and then also, you know, now I'm shooting past that uh, and, and going for a graduate degree, a PhD. Uh, even more so, I'm actually switching from a bachelor's of science in chemistry, which is what I got at the University of California at Santa Barbara, and now I'm actually transitioning to a degree in biomedical engineering for the PhD uh, at at Texas. Um, And so this question of you know, am I good enough? Are my math skills good enough? Uh, Can I do this? Was something that was really burning in my mind. And to give a little context of why I selected biomedical engineering was really because the labs that I wanted to join were in biomedical engineering departments and I want to make that point really really clear Uh, if you're thinking about pursuing a PhD or any sort of graduate school work don't lock yourself in what you did at undergraduate because that certainly is not what you need to do you can do whatever you want and it's really just a matter of interest and so for the PhD Yes, it's a lot about coursework. You're going to be taking course, courses for around two years. So, you know, you'll you'll take the course and you'll have a final at the end. Um, very typical college class. That'll be happening for around two years. Um, but the PhD is really about you doing research and you working in a laboratory um, and, and conducting unique research. And so you've got to find research that you want to do. And so when I was looking up schools, uh, try, I I wasn't really looking up schools that I wanted to join for the PhD, as I was looking for laboratories that I wanted to join. Um, So if you have an interest or something that you're, you know, a a passion that's burning inside you, so let's say you're, oh, I think stem cells are so, so cool, or I think CRISPR technology or, or gene editing technology is so cool. Instead of looking at schools and then kind of planning your way, oh, I got into Harvard, so let me plan my, you know, pick a lab at Harvard randomly, pick laboratories like look up genetic engineering or look up stem cell research find out who the leaders in these fields are and then apply to the schools and lab that have the laboratories that are leaders in those fields so when you're applying to graduate school it's really important that you're looking for laboratories and not just schools and not going for the school name because you're gonna be working in this lab uh, for roughly five years so you want the research to be something that you're passionate about And that's not going to come from the name of the school. That's going to come from the work that's being done in the laboratory. Uh, So I really can't stress that enough. When you're pursuing a program and trying to pick a program, search laboratories that you're interested in. Email the professor that's running the laboratory. Try to form a connection. Email the graduate students in the laboratory to kind of get an idea of what it's like working in that lab. Um, And then if all of that checks out and sounds like something you want to pursue, apply to that school. And then kind of furthermore, once I had picked these schools that I wanted to apply to was basically between the University of California at Santa Barbara, the University of Texas at Austin, and the University of Washington. I had selected these schools because they all had uh, several labs that I found interesting and that I wanted to join Uh, but ultimately Uh, the biomedical engineering department at UT Austin was really the one that I was like wow I could see myself happy in several labs here Um, and that's important because if, if only one lab at the university likes you, or 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 you only like one lab at the university. That's not really ideal because there's a matching process. So not only do you have to like the lab, but the lab has to like you. So it would be you know horrible for you to go to the school, commit to the school, and then find out that that lab that you wanted to join, uh, you know, isn't hiring right now or isn't accepting new students. Um, and so it's really important to identify a school where there's several labs that you would be happy. Uh, joining for your your graduate degree and another thing that I was really you know in my mind as I was trying to pick a graduate school um, was this idea this fear of switching from chemistry to biomedical engineering uh, and upon actually interviewing at uh, the Europe, the University of Texas at Austin um, so these are my interviews uh, during the process of applying to graduate school uh, you will be if you get through the first round of Applicants, you will be contacted for a subsequent interview. Um, so they're going to, you know, see more about you in a, in a personal manner. Mine were over Zoom. Um, typically, though, they'll fly you out, uh, and you'll be able to tour the school and also meet faculty and kind of get a, a, a you know, sort of job interview type thing. Um, and one of the people I interviewed with, uh, and I don't want to name drop them or anything, but one of the people I interviewed with was a, a large figure. Uh, in the biomedical engineering department and the chemical engineering department at UT Austin. Uh, Really kind of prolific figure, hundreds of papers, really big name. Um, And during our interview, which I was so excited to conduct uh, because I love talking to these faculty. I mean, they're celebrities to me and I was really, really excited for this. I had read all of his papers and I was really eager to to meet him and form this relationship and, and talk about his research and how I could help with the skill set that I have already accumulated over time. Um, however, the interview did not go well at all. Uh, it went really bad. He asked questions uh, like, oh you're a chemistry major, you know this is an engineering program, how are you going to do the coursework? Um, and him saying that kind of, you know, usually I'm a pretty uh, congenial guy and easygoing, but him saying this to me uh, kind of struck a nerve, and not that I became mean or rude or anything like that, but I held my ground and I said, well, uh, I've received several scholarships from the university already, um, and they've extended offers for you know, basically offering me a bunch of money and fellowships uh, to attend the university if I do choose to do so. So obviously the university whose job is to vet people um, who they think can or cannot take the coursework has already said, hey, this kid's a shining star, and he can. So I told him that, you know, I think I'll be fine to take the coursework because I won't have to be a TA or have uh, – a, a TA is a teaching assistant. So typically during your PhD, you'll work as a teaching assistant to kind of pay for your tuition. Um, so like a 40-hour like a work week as, you know, grading papers, things like this, teaching classes. However, I received several fellowships, which made it so I don't need to TA, so I'll have even more time. So I convey this to him. I said – yeah, I'll I'll be able to take the courses no problem because I'll have all this free time because I'll already have money and I won't have to TA and so I'll be able to focus specifically on my courses and on my research. And then he said something like, oh, um, your GPA, you know, it's not very high. And this is something I really want everybody to pay attention here because GPA is meaningless. But he said, oh, your GPA is only uh, 3.3. You know, that's not really super high. Uh, you know, what makes you think you can succeed here? And not in a way where I think he's trying to get, um, you know, a legitimate, uh, like, answer out of me, like he's trying to gauge who I am or gauge my work ethic, like more in a condescending tone, like he's actually trying to say, hey, man, this isn't the place for you. Um, But I said to him, I was working 40 hours a week at Starbucks um, and also at the Dining Commons, while I was an undergraduate. And I was going to my classes as a chemistry major, excelling in my classes. Like I think a 3.3 is pretty respectable, excelling in my classes. And on top of that, I was also doing research. So a typical day for me, a research being I was working in a research laboratory. So a typical day for me uh, would go something like this. So I'd wake up around 3 a.m., shower, or whatever, uh, and then I'd go to Starbucks for my shift, which would start at 4 a.m. And I'd work from 4 a.m. until noon. And then from noon uh, to around, I don't know, 4 or 5 p.m., I would, I would have class. So I'd go to class um, and kind of do all that class work. And then from 5 p.m. to midnight, essentially, I would work in the laboratory and do research. And then in the, in the meantime, between experiments... I would work on homework that I had accumulated you know, from my classes during the day uh, or study. And so this idea that you can try to put me into a box and paint the full picture of what I was going through at the time, sleeping three hours a night um, with this this number, this GPA, this 3.3, that in no way encompasses what I was actually doing. And I don't think that encompasses what anyone's actually doing because If I was only going to school and I didn't have to work full time and pay my bills and I didn't have to, uh, you know, also conduct research and also try to, you know, keep physically fit in the gym, I could have easily gotten a 4.0. School isn't very difficult if you have an infinite amount of time to study, Um, but, you know, it really rubbed me the wrong way the way he was trying to condescend down to me because I didn't have a 4.0 average. But that didn't hold me back, right? And I don't want anyone out there to say, oh, my GPA is not so good. I don't think I can get into graduate school. Because, you know, my GPA wasn't so good, 3.3, but I got into a really great university and several really great universities. And they extended huge scholarships towards me, full-ride scholarships and then some. um, And really kind of prestigious awards, uh, one being the the Ruth Uh, Kirstein Scholarship, uh, which is a T32 scholarship from the National National Institutes of Health, um, which everybody kind of knows about nowadays. But I really don't want anybody out there to think that, oh, my GPA is too low, I can't Uh, you know, go to graduate school. I'm already in this box. It's over for me. Uh, Because you can talk about these things in your personal statement. So my personal statement, I talked about how I was a first-generation college student. and When I came to college, I didn't know what I was doing. I talked about how I was working 40 hours a week and, you know, sleeping three hours a night and, you know, still conducting research and still working towards this dream that I had of being a scientist and running a research laboratory. And so, when you're applying to graduate school, you know these numbers are a thing, right? your your score on the GRE is a thing and your uh, your Gpa is is just a number. But really, you do have an opportunity to explain yourself and on on this on this personal statement that you write for the application, really be sure to to unpack who you are and what makes you different and why you would be, uh, great candidate for the PhD and why you're going to succeed. Um, and so I talked about my, my work ethic and how that will really lend itself uh, to my studies as I pursue the PhD. And so after this professor kind of really talking down to me and, you know, really making me feel bad about the interview uh, or during the interview, uh, I definitely had a lot of fear and I really wanted to prove him wrong. And I'm happy to say I did. Uh, so my first semester at UT Austin, Uh, in this PhD in biomedical engineering, uh, I got a 4.0 in all my courses. And they were challenging courses. Um, I had never uh, coded on the computer before, like in a serious capacity. I'd I'd messed around a little bit here and there, but I had never actually wrote serious code. Um, And my first class, I'm writing. um, I'm I'm doing machine learning and like intense algorithms and really doing high-level programming um, which, you know, I, I'm over here at the start of the class, I'm like, how do I, how do I save a file in MATLAB, which is the uh, computational language that I was learning at, at Austin? You know, how do I uh, even, you know, download the program? How do I open the program? Things like this. Uh, and I went from zero to 100 real fast as I went from not knowing how to do, do that to complex uh, programmer problem solving uh, and machine learning. You know, and it took a lot of time, and I kind of, saw some of my peers who had more experience in that realm and who had been engineers previously um, and are, now and are advancing their engineering degree having an easier time than me. But it really just came down to me sitting down, uh, you know, putting in those extra hours and, and uh, focusing and learning the material and becoming a programmer. Um, and I really think, you know, uh, friends like Nick Cardinal, uh, who's a great friend of mine who, who was a programmer, uh, by profession, and he really kind of helped me uh, learn some of the syntax and learn the way to think about uh, problems when I'm programming and how to diagnose issues as they come up. Um, also, want to thank my cohort for being so good to me. Like, we all help each other so much. So, my cohort being the other incoming. Uh, PhDs in biomedical engineering they're all so fantastic and so down to earth and they really uh, helped uplift me and you know when I had a question they would help me with it and they weren't uh, cutthroat or trying to you know direct the curve in any way by making me bomb or anything it really was them trying to uplift me and all of us uplifting each other Um, and then me also kind of uh, dusting off the cob, the cobwebs with like some intense math that I hadn't done in a long time. So uh, for one of the courses, um, fantastic course, it was all about the different biomedical imaging modalities that exist. So things like x-rays. So if you break your arm, you go get an x-ray. Um, I learned how to engineer that system. So, you know, what makes an x-ray machine and how x-rays work. Um, You know, the math behind it, so all the complex physics and mathematics that make this physical phenomenon of taking an x-ray possible. Um, And also, you know, how to conversationally describe what's going on to a person. So uh, this applied not only to x-rays, but also to MRI, so magnetic resonance imaging, uh, PET scans, uh, and also ultrasound. Um, and so learning the physics and math of this obviously uh, required me to kind of dust off some of those cobwebs, which I hadn't used in a while. You know, because after graduate or after my undergraduate, I took three years off to just work in a laboratory uh, where I studied squid camouflage. Um, but I really didn't, you know, use a whole lot of mathematics while I was in the lab. It was more of wet lab skills, actually doing experiments. Um, and so certainly uh, now solving triple integrals, uh, and doing, you know, solving physics problems, uh, was, was a challenge and I had to relearn that. But also again, pointing, you know, same, same vein as learning this programming. Uh, if you want something, you got to pursue it. And if you want something and you, and you believe in yourself and you put the work in, you can do it. We're all so infinitely talented and like your potential is just so much more than what you think it is and you can really do anything. Um, I really believe that. I mean, it it kind of this mindset kind of comes from my experience in the the gym. So I went from when I was a you know maybe 14 years old, I remember I could bench press around 90 pounds, something like that, and I figured, oh, I'm not a strong person; I'll never get stronger. But I kept working at it. Like I just, there was something about it that I liked to do, and I wanted to get stronger, and I wanted to work at it, and so I did. I put those hours in, and I got stronger. And uh, all my lifts nowadays are around 300 something pounds, and I'm, I'm I'm much stronger than I was previously. And this this idea of working at something. And putting the time in and staying committed to something applies not only to the gym or physical health or running, but also to you know any skill that you want to build. So if you want to learn how to play the guitar, you gotta play the guitar you know 30 minutes a day for a couple years. Or if you want to become a high level programmer, you gotta sit down for hundreds of hours. uh, You know, in my case, and you really gotta make that effort to learn, and you gotta catch up, and you gotta really commit yourself to this. And so, you know, don't take it lightly when you're pursuing something like a PhD or, you know, switching fields, but know that you can do it. You really can do anything you set your mind to. I know it's cliche, but if you have a goal and you want to pursue it and you pursue it with everything you've got, it's going to happen. I really believe that. I really think that we all are... You know the masters of our universe, and we can make anything we want happen for ourselves. We can manifest what we want. Uh, certainly, you can't just you know make magic things happen, but if you put the work in, you will see results, and that's what happened with me with this course, uh, with you know the relearning of the mathematics and the physics, and also the the you know now new learning of uh, how to program. Um, and so that kind of leads me into uh, the first semester. So this idea of you know me in the first semester of graduate school um, and you know what to expect from your first semester in graduate school um, so you can do uh, on top of the coursework which I just kind of mentioned a little bit touched on a little bit uh, you have to pick a laboratory that you're going to work in for the next four to five years um, and so there's two ways you can do that you can either direct match which is exactly what it sounds so you identify a laboratory that you want to join you email the professor, you say, hey, I want to join your lab. They say, great, I'd love to have you. Boom, you've direct match with that professor, and now you're going to work in their lab uh, as you pursue the, your PhD. So you'll get your, your publications, uh, and the work that you do will come out of that laboratory. The other method is this idea of rotations, um, and rotations being this idea that you go to a laboratory, so... You message a professor, you say, hey, can I rotate in your lab? You do so for uh, about a month. Each program's a little bit different, but my program was about a month, so you'd rotate in the lab for about a month, um, see how you like it, then go rotate in another lab for about a month, and then go to another lab and rotate in it for a month, Um, And so you can get the flavor of three different laboratories. um, And at the end of your first semester, or your first year, uh, you can pick which laboratory you like the most. And that will be your home for the next five years. And so I wanted to kind of touch on my experience and also my perspective on this idea of a direct match versus rotations. Um, So with a direct match, that's great because you get to start your research right away and you kind of get a a head start on, you know, your PhD because now you don't have to go through that three months uh, or, you know, that that full year of time while you're rotating. Uh, However, there are some major drawbacks to a direct match. So, you know, maybe you thought the lab was something that it wasn't and now you're stuck there. You know, maybe you actually don't fit in with the lab that much or the research isn't actually that interesting to you. Um, and so you're, you might find yourself in a position where you're unhappy for the PhD, which is you know five years of your life. so you certainly want to get it right when you rotate or when you pick a lab. Um, and also, when you're direct matching, right, uh, you don't get that benefit of rotating and getting a diverse, Uh, array of experiences, right? So if you rotate in one lab and you learn how to, you know, use this specific microscope and then you rotate in a different lab and you learn how to do this specific technique, well, guess what? You just got two things that you can put on your resume, right? Whereas if you just direct match, you're not going to get that, you know, extra resume experience um, and, you know, potentially we'll have a weaker resume and a harder time applying to, uh, you know, diverse array of jobs moving forward after the phd Uh, whereas when you rotate you get kind of uh, a wider flavor of experiences that you can put on your resume and you also kind of find what you do like and what you don't like right maybe you don't like a lab that does this research but you like a lab that does this other type of research Um, and you know This can evolve over time. You may think, you know, go into school and think, oh, I want to do genetic engineering. That's really, you know, what I want to do for the rest of my life. And you might have personal reasons motivating that, um, like I did with my my brother and his genetic disorder. However, you know, you might actually get into the field and be like, actually, this isn't something that I really want to pursue for the rest of my life, right? And so uh, maybe, you know, if you did a direct match, you wouldn't really be able to parse that out. But if you do rotations, you can really see clearly what you do and don't like. Also, something to consider is, you know, not only the research, but the community of the lab itself is so, so important. So me, like people who run labs are called private investigators or sorry, principal investigators. Uh, these are the people who run the laboratory PIs. Um, and they have, you know, they're just like any other boss. They have different styles of mentorship and different styles of, of leadership. And so uh, you might find one boss is really hands-on and another boss is really, really hands-off. And neither of those is better than the other, but it's all about you knowing who you are and identifying who you are as a person and what you respond to best. So for me, I really respond well to someone who is hands-on and is kind of involved in my research and in my studies and helping me guide it, um, you know, because I want more of a seasoned uh or or more uh rigorous uh guidance during my phd Um, but some people you know kind of want more hands-off kind of vibe from their boss and they kind of want to do their experiments and then kind of come to their boss when they have results or only come to their boss when they have a problem Um, they don't really want someone constantly checking in on them for progress reports i know for me personally, I perform better when someone's like, hey, here's the deadline. Hey, here's a deadline. So it's really just about knowing yourself there. Um, and doing the rotations is a great way for you to you know, figure out what kind of mentorship uh, works for you and doesn't work for you. Also, the community—the the community of the lab—is so important. So, uh, some labs will have kind of a booming community of of young students, uh, graduate students, undergraduate students, um, and postdoctorates uh, who are all you know talking to each other and being collaborative. And other laboratories will be kind of more isolated or more individual. So, there still will be a lot of people in the lab, but maybe everybody's kind of working on a different project, and they're not all. Uh, you know, really eager to work with each other or go on lunch, you know, dates together or uh, hang out outside of lab hours, things like this. And so you really got to identify what you want uh, from your community that you're working in. Again, considering that this is going to be a place you're going to be at for five plus years. I personally think that rotations uh, and the benefits of rotations far out risk uh, or far outweigh the negatives of rotations, right? So the only negative, really, of a rotation is that you potentially lose uh, time that you could have already started on your research. So if you direct match, like I said, you can hit the ground running and start your graduate research right away, whereas if you're rotating, you're kind of uh, doing a new task uh, every month or so and kind of have to restart your your progress. Um, And then pick which one you want to ultimately join at the end of it. So you lose a little bit of time there. But you also gain much more experience and you get a better chance of identifying uh, what the different labs are about and also what you are about. Like what you want from your PhD and how you want uh, the structure of your mentorship and the structure of your community that you're engaging with for the next five years to be Um, So I think it's a good time for me to touch on my experiences during my rotations. Um, So I rotated in two labs at UT Austin, one being the Stachowiak lab and the other being the Wong lab at UT Austin. So the Stachowiak lab lab was really a huge reason I came to uh, UT Austin. So they were investigating membranes, and intrinsically disordered proteins, and in the interplay between these two, um, and you know, just from a fundamental biophysics perspective, how these things work, and the importance of community really shined in this lab uh, because we'd go out to lunch together frequently. Uh, kind of a young, young group of graduate students and and postdoctorates where we'd all hang out and we'd laugh, we'd. Uh, work together when, uh, you know, a problem would come up. I'm like, oh, hey, how, ca- how can I solve this problem? They would help me. Um, also, we'd have a really fun thing that we do together every Friday where we'd get together and have tea and just chit-chat about the day uh, or about the work week and kind of touch base with each other. And also, Professor Stachowiak herself is fantastic and really the mentor that I think I'll work best with because she's hands-on and she expects a lot of time commitment, like a nine to five, uh, which is also what I expect from my, my PhD. I wanna be working 40 hours a week in the lab and I want to be you know working hard. And I also think I perform better when someone is giving me deadlines constantly. Though that is stressful, stress makes me perform and that I just know that about myself. Maybe break down the research there a little bit more cause it is cool. Um, so the idea of you know, how membranes work, like membrane biophysics, so how a membrane bends is so important. Um, and I hadn't really thought about it much before uh, looking into graduate schools, but every cell or every living uh, thing in this universe uh, that we know of, I guess, but every living organism uh, has, you know, cellular membranes surrounding it. So a cell, you know, whether it's animal or, or a prokaryote, um, or a plant cell has that uh, that membrane that separates itself from the outside environment, and then also uh, cell like membrane compartments within the cell uh, that form things like the organelles. So the the mitochondria, right, the powerhouse of the cell, as everybody knows it. That's you know that took a membrane to bend in a very organized way uh, in space and in time. Uh, to form this discrete compartment and then things like the endoplasmic reticulum also you know this this folding of a membrane uh, in a very organized fashion also had to occur Um, and so it's really important that cells are able to control membrane bending and the compartmentalization of itself and its organelles. Uh, also, you can think of you know, the division of a cell, right? So a cell has to be able to organize the bending of its membranes to separate out into two cells, right? So this idea of, of cell division, right? Literally the way cells replicate is so closely related to this idea of uh, controlled membrane bending, which is a phenomenon we really don't understand. And I could go on and on about all the different aspects of of human biology and human pathology, uh, that membrane chemistry and biophysics is super duper important. Uh, But those are just a few to get you thinking like, wow, yeah, this is like a universally uh, important phenomenon that must be controlled. And then the other thing I touched on is this idea of intrinsically disordered proteins. And so these are fascinating to me. Um, And so proteins themselves uh, are nature's little biological machines. And so Uh, man-made machines like we have a printer to print things well what does the cell use to print things it uses you know a little enzyme or a little protein that does a very specific function uh, to carry out a very specific task so there's proteins that uh, replicate and copy DNA these are your DNA polymerases Uh, there's proteins that break down cell cellular walls and cellular membranes Um, there's proteins that Regulate your your sleep schedule. So when you feel tired, when you don't feel tired, um, proteins that regulate you know the contraction of your muscles. Essentially, any function that goes on within our bodies or within any cellular body um, is dictated by a biological machine, a protein. And so, over the past fifty years, right, biochemistry being a field that emerged around nineteen fifties, nineteen forties, nineteen fifties everybody thought that a protein's structure led to its function. So you needed a specific shape to impart the function of the protein. So if the protein, right, the little molecular machine, if it's shaped like a pair of scissors, it probably cuts something. So this is something like a lyso- lysozyme, so it, it cuts. Um, or if it's shaped like a hammer, it probably smashes something, uh, et cetera, right? So the idea that a shape, the protein folds into a very specific shape, and that shape, uh, imparts its function was like this universal belief um but in actuality around 50 percent of the proteins that make up human beings and, and all animals and, and plants um 50 of these are uh unfolded so they don't have a specific structure they don't have like a, a shape to them they don't look like a pair of scissors they don't look like anything and scientists for the longest time were like oh those are just junk those proteins are just junk or the The parts of the protein that are not folded, those are just junk parts, you know, have no uh, functions to them. And that's silly, right? That wouldn't make sense. Why would biology, uh, you know, keep making these useless proteins, right? That takes energy for the cell to make these proteins. So why would it just do this and be energy inefficient? That's not how biology works. Um, And so that doesn't really make sense. So we don't understand around 50% of the proteins that make us... You know us or the proteins that make life possible um, and it's actually growing, growing knowledge is, is starting to accumulate that these proteins that lack structure, these intrinsically disordered proteins um, actually have so many roles in biology that are very very important and a lot of them have to do with orchestrating uh, the, the bending of membranes in a very specific and time controlled manner And so I could also go on and on, and I'll probably have an episode about uh, intrinsically disordered proteins in themselves, but they're involved in things like Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, um, the uptake of... Uh, cargo by the cell, and also dynamic camouflage in squid. And a whole myriad of other functions that are still yet to be illuminated. Um, And I really could just go on and on about this because there's so many things that these intrinsically disordered proteins are being identified to do. And so I'm really excited to illuminate uh, this fundamental uh, biophysical phenomenon and this, this novel class of proteins and try to shed light on what these do ultimate goal is to be in a textbook someday um, and, you know, give lectures on this and help learn this fundamental science, which will ultimately uh, help future drug design and and biomedical treatments for various disorders. Um, so yeah, that's the research. So intrinsically disordered proteins and membranes, really cool stuff. And also the sochoviak lab had a really incredible sense of community and I felt totally at home there and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I could see myself there for five years no problem. Um, And then I rotated in Professor Wong's lab, not because I felt that I didn't, you know, I had already kind of said, oh I really love the Sechowiak lab, that's where I want to be. Um, However, like I said, I think it's important to do the rotations to, you know, confirm that, you know, that's the best option for you and also at the same time gain experience that you otherwise wouldn't get if you just committed to one lab and direct matched. So I rotated in uh, the Wong lab at UT Austin and this research was awesome. I mean it was just absolutely like science fiction. Um, so the bread and butter of this lab was this idea of sono optogenetics. So sono being uh, like sonar, like uh, sound. So using sound uh, to control optogenetics. And optogenetics is a growing field of uh, biomedical engineering where you can turn a protein on and then turn it off uh, based off the stimulation by light. So you can shine light of a specific wavelength, like blue light onto a a protein and, and make that protein turn on. And so, for example, if you have a protein that's going to um, alleviate Alzheimer symptoms in a patient. Um, you know, normally people take drugs uh, orally or intravenously to turn proteins on and off. Um, however, if I can just shine light on you, um, then this uh, is a much less invasive way to activate that protein and, and start that treatment because light will just penetrate your tissue and isn't going to like hurt you or anything like that. Uh, and it's certainly less invasive than like a drug. Um, and then this, this sono is combining these light-activated proteins um, with this idea that you can turn on these light-activated proteins with ultrasound. So ultrasound can actually trigger mechanoluminescent nanoparticles, which when they get wiggled with the right uh, wavelength of sound, they'll illuminate some light, and then that light will turn on the proteins that we want. Um, So it's a way for you to control the activation of genes in different regions of the body using only non-invasive ultrasound ultrasound like really doesn't hurt you in any way that's why we use it for babies and stuff in the womb because it's, there's no radiation uh it doesn't really cause excessive heat uh in the tissue and it's really just a great and easy and really cheap way of uh activating a gene so this this sono optogenetic toolkit was something that the Wong lab uh, was really developing and so what I was working on in the Wong lab was investigating dopa decarboxylase activation in the brain of a parkinson mouse model um, so this idea that uh, Parkinson's disease is characterized by a loss in the uh, function of this protein called dopa decarboxylase in the striatum of the brain so kind of like a near the brain stem um, and so this this dopa decarboxylase stops working and it stops converting levodopa to dopa um, and you know you you're you kind of stop having your uh, dopamine you know triggering neurotransmitters and triggering you know proper synapse firing and so people like can't control their nerves and they can't control you know their own limb movement and you know how horrifying is that right And so this idea that you can turn these genes back on and upregulate them uh, through the use of this sono-optogenetic toolkit. So using sound to turn these genes back on uh, to alleviate uh, Parkinson's in a mouse model. And then obviously we would want to extrapolate that to a human model at some point. So it was a really, really cool um, laboratory and I loved it. But there were some issues, right? There were some issues that I identified for myself personally. So, one, I wasn't really a huge fan of the idea of working with mouse models for the next five years. Um, You know, I'd have to, uh, you know, experiment in the mouse, breed the mice, and then ultimately, when the experiments are over, kill them in a humane fashion. Um, But that wasn't really something that I wanted to do, Um, and wasn't really something that I was eager to do just because I don't have the stomach for that, really. And then also, uh, I just didn't identify and click as much with the community in that lab. It was much more individual. This is primarily because uh, Dr. Wong was a new professor or is a new professor at UT Austin. And uh, though I'm 100% sure that his research will find great success because he it's just awesome. It's straight up science fiction. It's just it's so... New and so uh, kind of just getting started that it would have taken a lot more effort on my part and a lot more personal agency on my part uh, to help get this lab really off the ground. Um, and I knew that just for me, I wanted something uh, more rigorous and uh, more guided mentorship as I pursued my PhD. But if you're the type of person that really likes working independently and solving your own problems and wanted more of a personal responsibility in the success of your laboratory then this would have been a great lab for you and so ultimately because of the you know less at-home feeling I felt with the community of the lab and also kind of like just the mentorship style of the pi i ultimately decided not to go with this laboratory but it was awesome and i loved my experience and i really gained a lot of great things that i can put on my resume and so again really big fan of this rotation system and i really think anybody uh going to graduate school for a phd should uh do some rotations and and figure out what they do like and what they don't like right i identified that i like a hands-on pi Uh, rather than a hands-off boss, right? And I also identified which research personally was more fulfilling for me. And so the rotations are important for finding what you do like, but also finding what you don't like. Uh, So again, I just really think those are important. And then as far as classes go uh, i already kind of talked about this a little bit but the imaging modalities class was awesome how x-rays work and how mris work how ultrasound works i mean i really think for the rest of my life i'm going to be annoying when i go to the hospital or i go to a doctor's office and i get an x-ray because i'm like oh do you know how uh this this works and how this image forms and uh i could solve the triple integral that would blah 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 and I, i don't know i was so fascinated by the the magic that goes on with these machines. Um, And it really is magic. I mean, when you get down to the math of it and you see what's going on, it's just crazy. It's wild. And so I just love these classes and I thought it was awesome. Um, The instructor was awesome. And I also took a course uh, called Computational Methods for Biomedical Engineers. Um, I talked about how, you know, there was a lot of adversity uh, going into that. Uh, and not having any experience with coding or programming, uh, and then kind of being thrown in the deep end of coding and programming. So love the classes. It was really, really fulfilling. Uh, and I could not be happier with the coursework that I, that I picked and it's, it's been awesome. I really think it's been awesome. So yeah, a note on that pick classes that you want to take, right? Graduate school isn't like undergraduate so an undergraduate oh you have to take this you have to take physics 101 chemistry 101 math one right you have to take these these courses very very specifically but in graduate school you take what you want so you know if you have an interest take that class it's really an incredible opportunity the amount of classes offered are so much greater than the amount of classes offered in undergraduate and it's really just like if you like learning and you're interested in mastering materials it's like you're a kid in a candy store in graduate school you can really pick whatever you want and customize your education to whatever career you're trying to pursue uh, ultimately and so i want to be an expert in all sorts of imaging. So I want to be able to look at atoms and bonds at the molecular level. And then I want to also be able to take uh, you know, x-rays of people's arms or, or, or uh, take uh, electron microscope images of like the coronavirus and then look at things that people can't see. And so I'm really fascinated uh, by imaging. So I've been taking computational classes and imaging modality classes to, to pursue this. Another thing I want to touch on about this first semester as a PhD is the cohort and life in a new city, right? And so when you're pursuing a PhD, you are going to be uh, – typically, you're going to do a PhD somewhere you didn't do your, you know, for your undergraduate. And so there's going to be a bit of a um, displacement as you move to a new city or you move to wherever that university is. Um, and that's just an adventure. Really, you got to see it that way. You got to see it as an opportunity – to grow as a person and expand your horizons, um, you know, in a very unique way. And so I'm so thankful that I was able to go to the University of Texas at Austin. Again, I'm a longhorn now, baby. Let's go. Um, And Austin is such an awesome city, live music capital of the world. I feel like every time I go out, uh, I find a new awesome venue with great live music that I'm just – thoroughly enjoying myself at. And every day I find something new that's awesome and enjoyable. Um, paddleboarding on Ladybird Lake is really, really great. I uh, really like paddleboarding. Um, it's also a great city to run in, which is something that I'm very fond of. Um, and I also want to touch on how incredible my cohort is. Uh, I said it earlier, but these people are so cool. Um, really just complex individuals and so it's just so refreshing to be surrounded by people who are also interested in kind of education and just high level of intellectual thought, um, which isn't something that you really get uh, in other, or at least I didn't get in in other uh, areas of my life. So with this cohort, we'll talk about, you know, what books we've been reading, um, you know, complex scientific concepts that we're, you know, enthralled with, um, And we'll also do things like, you know, Bar hopping or or playing charades together or going to sports events. Uh, One really awesome thing that we did together was a Friendsgiving, right? So the first Thanksgiving away from all of our families, um, it's still important to find that sense of community and we had a Friendsgiving, so a little potluck exchange and that was just awesome just to, you know, have a sense of home away from home. Um, And so I really uh, encourage everybody to make those connections with your cohort or, you know, other uh, people in the program who may not be in your year, but, you know, years uh, uh, that came before you Um, and just make new friends because it's really an opportunity uh, as you start your PhD to meet new people and grow as an individual learn more about yourself and just enjoy enjoy your life and yeah, I've I've been thoroughly enjoying it the whole time Um, that's not to say that there hasn't been a lot of adversity but yeah it's just incredible so Touching on that, right, some adversities that I faced, because I don't want it to sound like, oh, it's all great, everything's great, because there really was a lot of things that, that I struggled with um, during this quarter with the PhD. Um, so obviously I touched on it, like this idea of life in a new city, which is, one, exciting, but also can be kind of isolating um, and can kind of be a bit daunting, right? You're uh, displaced in a new environment, trying to figure out, you know, how your schedule is going to work and you might be a little alone at first or, you know, maybe, you know, it depends on how long you, or it depends on you as a person, how, uh, you know, social you are or how much you want to socialize, but you can be kind of alone for a little bit. Um, and then also with the PhD, everybody's working really hard in their own lane, right? So it's, it, it can feel isolating sometimes. And, it's important to you know take care of your mental health and do stuff that you like to do and find that time for yourself uh, and also just try to grow uh, socially and enjoy your time because it really is such a unique opportunity um, that not a lot of people get to experience in their life and you should really uh, feel positive when you when you think about it. And I certainly reflect positively on it, but it can be challenging to be you know in a new city and kind of alone. Another thing that was really Tremendously difficult for me was uh, my grandpa died um, right before finals. Uh, so I was in Starbucks and I was um, studying for my imaging modalities class, you know, looking at, you know, doing the X ray equations and the MRI equations and whatnot. And my grandpa uh, had a massive heart attack, and I got, you know, just a FaceTime call from a cousin. And, uh, you know, it was time to say goodbye to my grandpa. Um, And that was really, really hard um, just because he was such a huge aspect in me pursuing engineering and me pursuing the Ph.D. And uh, I really, really, really wanted to tell him about my success with the first semester of of the Ph.D. And how, you know, I had done it. I had made the transition to engineer and that it was going well. Um, and I really was so eager to share this with him. Um, and par- this was partly because uh, he had always kind of held engineering as like a, a high degree and had always like thought very highly of people who were engineers and uh, and was proud of people who were engineers. Um, and also just because he was just so sharp. He was just an absolute brilliant man. Uh, one day, when I was an undergraduate doing my chemistry degree at Santa Barbara, I was stressed and so I called him up and you know I'm sitting by the lagoon or by the beach at Santa Barbara and I call him up and I'm like oh hey grandpa how you doing and he's like oh I'm good how are you and he ultimately asked you know what I'm studying at the time or what I'm you know doing and I'm like oh I'm stressed because I have a final to take uh in physics I was studying electromagnetism at the time and he says oh like maxwell's equations and then this 80 year old man who wasn't an engineer? He was a business administration uh, degree at Cal Poly Pomona. He is like, he recites all three of Maxwell's uh, equations of electromagnetism to me, which I, I can't tell you right now, right? I, I couldn't say those to, to you. And that was only a few years ago when I was using those. Um, and there's really no reason for him to know those. And it was just, he was just incredible. Like, really, how sharp he was, even until the end. Like, he was just next level intelligence and i think it was really because he didn't want to learn things for the sake of learning them or for the sake of uh sorry for the sake of getting a degree um, or the the sake of getting an a in a class he wanted to learn he wanted to master subjects and and advance his mind and, and advance his intellect and it was really just wild to see him know everything about mechanics or seemingly everything about mechanics, seemingly everything about uh, electricity, and seemingly everything about, you know, a diverse array of engineering fields and mathematics, um, when there was really no reason for this business major uh, from Columbus, Ohio, to know this. And so that was really hard to say goodbye to him while studying and just try to keep it together, you know, and push forward and take finals and not let that, you know, hold me down or, uh, stifle me because I knew that's not what he would want. I knew he would want me to be successful and persevere and push through it. And I did. And yeah, I got the 4.0 and I'm really, really proud of that. Um, and yeah, but that was an adversity I faced during the, uh, during the, uh, first semester of my PhD and it was difficult. Um, and then also, you know, just adjusting to a new area and feeling isolated. Like I touched on before, uh, some dating stuff, like, you know, going through a breakup, small little thing. That's, that's really small, but you know, there are, there are adversities right there. I'm a real person and, uh, you know, there was certainly, uh, some dark sides to my first semester. Uh, however, wow, what an awesome first semester. And I really could not be, uh, more excited for the next semester and really thankful that i got to experience this and that i'm on this journey of pursuing the phd and i would really encourage anyone who's thinking about a phd or you know going back to school maybe you're just going back to school to change fields into a a different degree but you know just do it and just you know if you love learning and you want to advance your degree uh, because there's a, a goal that you have in mind you know you want to be for me i want to be a the head of a research lab someday um, you know, and if that require you, that does require an advanced degree. Um, and so, you know, pursue that. Uh, and it's a really rewarding experience. Uh, and my first sem- sem- semester was really tremendous, even though it came with a ton of adversity and a ton of self doubt, um, it turned out phenomenal. I got a 4.0, like I said. Uh, and I got accepted to the laboratory of my choice, right? So I direct, like, the Stachowiak lab, which is the lab I wanted, accepted me, and so now I'm working in that laboratory. Um, And, yeah, it just was a fantastic experience all around. So in closing, uh, thanks for listening to this first installment of my graduate diary, Um, and feel free to message me, you know, if you have any questions about the experience um, or, you know, if there's anything you're curious about moving forward. Um, and yeah, just thanks again so much for listening and I'm excited to tell you how the next semester goes. So yeah. Did you like this episode? What are your thoughts on the whole PhD diary series? Please let me know, leave a comment or a review on Apple or Spotify really would mean a lot to me as I continue to grow this project, subscribe on YouTube, drop some likes Thank you so much for everybody who supported so far, and I'm excited to keep working on this in the future. Cheers.